0: Week, the Comics Guys explain the children of it. Hey, uh, before we get to our special Halloween episode of Explain This Comics Guys, I want to take a moment uh, to do a shout out to Sherman's Books in Bar Harbor, Maine, uh, which, it may, which is certainly the best uh, bookstore in Bar Harbor, perhaps the best bookstore in Maine, and I'm willing to argue one of the best stores on the entire East Coast. And part of what makes them so awesome is that they have included Explain This Comics guys uh, in the set of podcasts that they actually play uh, for their customers uh, during the working day. So, you know, thanks so much to you guys for uh, supporting the podcast and, uh, you know, we hope you uh, enjoy the rest of the episodes. It, It came from the swamp. There are a lot of characters with that as an origin, and today we're going to take a look at them. So, Darren, how about we dive into the Swamp? Absolutely. So the reason this one kind of, like, comes up, it's one that uh, has been, was was presented to me as a possible topic. And the reason was, they were talking about the Swamp Thing and Man-Thing. And Swamp Thing's from DC, and Man-Thing is from Marvel. And they were wondering which of them came first. Which of them is like a ripoff of the other. Because they looked at the dates that they were both published. And realized they both came out like within a year of each other. Which seems like there must be a story to that. And in fact there is. And we're going to tell you that story. Because uh, neither of them is. They and several other characters are all ripoffs of one character. From way way back in 1940. In 1940. There was a pulp story called It! It! And it was published in a magazine called Unknown, which was a science fiction pulp of the time. Uh, And it was written by a science fiction writer uh, by the name of Theodore Sturgeon. Ted Sturgeon uh, is a pretty famous writer. He's in the hall of fame for uh, sci-fi writers. He wrote a novella called More Than Human uh, that won a bunch of awards. He wrote two episodes of original Star Trek. He wrote Shore Leave and Emic Time, the one where Spock has to fight Kirk because he wants to get married to the woman on Vulcan. You know, both of which are excellent episodes. And he is mostly famous for coining a term, coining a phrase called Sturgeon's Law, and Sturgeon's Law is 90% of everything is crap. So, you know, any anybody who goes around saying something as funny as that is going to be remembered forever. But one of the things he is remembered for Uh, is this story called It. And It is it's about a 10-page long story in which a creature comes to life in a swamp. And a lot of the story is told from its point of view as it's trying to understand being alive, right? And so it doesn't understand itself, who it is. It doesn't really understand the difference between being dead and being alive. It doesn't understand the world that it's in, but it's clearly like intelligent, Dispassionate, mostly emotionless, and it's kind of wandering around the swamp. And the first thing it finds and runs into is a dog uh, who's called Kimbo, who's owned by the farmers who own this property. And the dog, you know, gets all freaked out when it sees him and kind of like tries to bite him and it kills the dog. The dog, uh, you know, Kimbo dies, uh, you know, fairly brutally. The dog's owner is a guy named Alton. He's a farmer and a hunter, and he lives with his brother, whose name is Corey, and his brother's wife, Clissa, and their daughter, Babe. And they're very poor. It's 1940. They're barely scraping by in their, in the, uh, you know, in this, between, you know, between them, all working together on this farm and this property. And Alton discovers his dog has been killed and not eaten, so it wasn't killed by a bear or something, right? It wasn't killed uh, by anything he understands, and goes tracking the thing that killed it. Uh, stays out all night and into the next day, tracking its killer, pisses off his brother because he's left to do all the chores by himself. And when he doesn't return by the end of next morning, Babe, the girl, sets out herself to go find him. And she's like 10 years old. And then later, uh, you know, when we have kind of lost track of both of them, we hear gunshots ring out in the valley, and Corey goes out looking for his brother too. Uh, The creature kills Alton. Once again, just out of curiosity, right? Like trying to figure out what this creature is, he kind of like takes it apart in his hands, like tears his arms off a bunch of other uh, things. And then nearly kills another man who didn't even really kind of see it, basically just found the dead body and took off. The other man drops a briefcase, which is found by Babe. And in it, she reads a whole bunch of papers and a newspaper article about this guy named Kirk who was offering a large sum of money for whoever could find the remains of his grandfather. And apparently his grandfather died somewhere on this property some time ago. And so this guy had come looking for the remains, finds Alton's dead body, freaks out and leaves. Babe keeps searching for her uncle, runs into the creature herself, which is described like this. A massive caricature of a man, a huge thing like an irregular mud doll, clumsily made. It quivered and parts of it glistened and parts of it were dried and crumbly. Half of the lower part of its face was gone, giving it a lopsided look. It had no perceptible mouth or nose, and its eyes were crooked, one higher than the other, both a dingy brown with no whites at all. Obviously, this little girl freaks out when she sees this giant monster made out of mud uh, and screams. It picks her up by her hair and then drops her, And she scrambles around on the ground and escapes between its legs and starts to run away. And he goes to kind of, like, chase it, once again, more out of curiosity than anything else. She throws a rock at it that causes it to trip and stumble into the creek. And it hits the water and sinks to the bottom. And the entire rest of the story is it just kind of observing itself curiously as the water of the brook that's running by kind of, like, melts and dissolves the muck of its body. And it kind of just comes apart in the water over the course of some time and reveals the skeleton of old Roger Kirk left behind as it died. The skeleton is found by other people. Nobody believes this poor little girl's story. The family gets the money from the Kirk estate anyway for finding his remains. And the last lines of the story are, so the Druze had a new barn and fine new livestock and they hired four men but they didn't have Elton, and they didn't have Kimbo, and Babe screams at night and has grown very thin. So, you know, awesome, creepy horror story of the sort that you would find in the 1940 pulp. Yeah, Was very well regarded. Everybody loved it. Thought it was a great, creepy story. Uh, was reprinted a bunch of times, and uh, eventually itself got reprinted as a comic book in the 70s. In 1972, Marvel got the rights to do that as a comic book, basically, with the story uh, adapted by Roy Thomas and with art by Maurice Everin, who was one of the great woman comic book artists in the 70s. Uh, And that was in Supernatural Thriller's number one. But before that would happen, a whole bunch of other stuff would happen about that concept of a character, of that kind of creature from the swamp that was made out of the swamp itself, right? And and believed it was human, is an idea that would perpetuate itself for a whole bunch of different characters. Two years after the story was published, it is now a fairly famous short story, won a bunch of awards, has been reprinted several times for those people know about it. In December of 1942, Harry Stein and Mort Lev, who are working for Hillman Comics at that point, write a story in uh, the comic that they're writing at the time called Air Fighters, number three. And Air Fighters is a series about adventurous, not really kind of superhero, but like pilots, right? It it was like Black Hawk or something. They were like, you know, super awesome pilots who were fighting enemies and had really cool planes and were actually pulp hero types. And they did a story starring one of those pilots who was called Skywolf, and in which his plane... Kind of crashes in a swamp and he winds up meeting a swamp creature that is pretty much exactly like the creature from it right it is in fact this big you know kind of like messed up creature of gunk right that's uh, bigger than man size and kind of lumbers around uh and has a really kind of like distinctive weird looking face it has like a root growing out of the middle of its face down the, uh, the the structure of its face to its chest that kind of like makes it look like it has a nose but not really. And Skywolf fights it and manages to get away. And in the end, but the monster is portrayed like Frankenstein, kind of sympathetically. You feel bad for it. And we learn his backstory where we discover that he was in fact a German World War One flying ace named erin Baron Erich von Emmelmann was his name. And his plane is shot down during World War I over Poland. And his skeleton is left behind in the swamp. And depending on the version of the story that gets told, because the story gets told over and over again, it's either his powerful desire to live or the assistance of like a mysterious nature goddess, Mother Nature, or, you know, whatever, causes him to come back to life. And his skeleton like builds a new body out monk and muck and plants and gunk and whatever and starts wandering around Europe. He fights Skywolf a couple of times. He becomes very popular as a character. He's now called the Heap. And the Heap becomes so popular as a supporting character not only because he's cool and awesome looking but because the writers basically decide the one thing he really doesn't like is Nazis. Right? Cuz these stories are all being told during World War II. And so the Heap beats up a bunch of Nazis and basically becomes a hero over the course of these comics. He teams up with Skywolf. He teams up with Airboy. He gets his own solo stories uh, in the back of Airboy's comics as they go forward. And he appears over a grand total of 78 different issues between 1946 and 1953. That's a really good run for a character in the Golden Age. That's a lot of issues. Yeah, wow. Right? That's That's an enormous number and a really long run I mean, that run takes you from the end of the war to 1953. That's way past when any of the DC characters were still working or anything like that. Right? By the, you know, The Heap wasn't really a superhero character. He was a horror character who happened to be a good guy. And most of his comics, he fights werewolves and zombies. He has a teen sidekick, kind of like the Hulk and Rick Jones for a while, where he's there's like an ordinary kid who's like traveling around with him, trying to help him. Uh, figure out who he is and see if he can be, you know, cured or something. It uh, gets a bunch of different writers over the uh, One of the writers who works on the heap during this stretch for writing for it in the, in the uh, late 40s into the early 50s is Patricia Highsmith, uh, who went on to become obviously much more famous for writing The Talented Mr. Ripley uh, and a bunch of other mysteries later. But uh, in her early writing career, she wrote comics for Hillman um, some of the artists that worked on The, the Heap during the stretch, Arthur Petty, uh, who was mostly famous for uh, Phantom Lady, uh, was in there, Ernest Schroeder, a bunch of really good artists and writers worked on this character. So it gets canceled. It finally kind of runs out of steam in 1953, but it's put up a good run, you know, and a lot of uh, people are fans of, of that character. So Roy Thomas who we have talked about multiple times and we'll get an an extended thing on when we finally do the history of Marvel. Uh, But he was an enormous Golden Age comic book fan. And one of his favorite characters was the Heap. And so when he got a job in working for Marvel uh, in the the late 60s, he became Stan Lee's assistant and uh, was the associate editor and did a bunch of writing. He kept bringing back characters that he liked for it, uh, uh, over the, the the run of the time he was there one of the characters he was writing was for the incredible hulk in 1969 he introduced a version of the heap because he liked it so much he created a character that was called the glob and the glob basically had the exact same backstory as the heap except instead of being in poland he was in the florida everglades right and he's a guy dies in the Everglades. A you know monster is kind of like built around his skeleton, super strong. The Hulk winds up wandering through the Florida Everglades. They get into a fight. Apparently the creature dies, but it was popular enough that it didn't really die and it came back a few times. He hasn't really appeared very often since the 70s, but he turns up every now and then. He's part of kind of Marvel history. But that was the first time that, character, that type of character got, uh, got brought back. In the 70s, early 70s, a publisher called Skywall did a series of comics starring a character called The Heap. And it's pretty unclear, it's, it's really uncertain whether or not Skywald ever had the rights to this, right? Because Hillman was out of business as a company. And Skywald was kind of famous for not really caring whether they were violating trademarks or copyrights or anything like that. So it's pretty clear that this was an illegal version of the character, but Skywald didn't really care. And so from 1971 to 1973, they put out 12 issues of a comic called Psycho And then one issue of a feature character, feature comic for The Heap, The Heap number 1. Bunch of well-known writers and artists of the 60s and 70s worked on this. Charles McNaughton, Ross Andrew, Mike Esposito, Robert Kaniger, Tom Sutton. They basically were redoing The Heap. They all were fans. They were familiar with the character that they were working on. Once again, he's got a different origin. This time he is pilot Jim Roberts, uh, who's working for the Army. He flies his plane and crashes into an Army toxic waste dump. Right. And it's so, like, it's all the radioactive toxic waste or whatever that, in fact, actually creates the monster around his skeleton. Uh, and he comes out in this version, he is much more intelligent, right? Like, the Heap himself didn't talk. And it was kind of unclear exactly how smart he was, right? That's why he had all of these other characters he was interacting with. The Skywald version of the Heap is perfectly intelligent. It can't talk, but it gets thought bubbles all the time. And over the course of its run, he travels around the world trying to cure himself. He wants to fix. He doesn't want to be the Heap anymore. He wants to go back to being a human. Of course, the series never actually gets finished and, you know, just kind of trails off. The Hillman characters themselves, Airboy, Valkyrie, Skywolf, all of those guys, including the Heap, are actually legally acquired by Eclipse Comics in the early 1980s. They go out of their way to actually go track down who owns the rights to all of these and they buy them outright. They actually have legal contract rights to do this. And it's years after the Skywalled stories anyway. So they do a new Airboy series in which the Heap returns as a regular supporting character. And it's exactly the version of the Heap that appears all through the 40s. They did a teen comic called The New Wave and the Heap appeared in that. So for several years, the Heap is still now kind of kicking around in the backs of, of Airboy. comics. Eclipse, unfortunately, goes out of business in 1993. Todd McFarlane comes along, and he acquires their assets out of bankruptcy, and several more Heap stories, part of what he gets is the rights to the Heap as well, and he does a bunch of Airboy and Heap stories for Image in 1996, and he creates a new modern day as a bad guy to show up in Spawn, starting in 1998, so he owns the rights to the name, and this villain has turned up periodically this monster that has to that gets to fight spawn has turned up that's the current state of the character right mcfarland still owns the rights to that character the heap has not appeared very often since the late 90s but periodically he's part of like the spawn you know kind of rogues gallery that he could turn up any so that's kind of where the heap stays as a character the heap himself has now been ripped off many times since then as well so we go all the way back to World War II again now, and now we're doing a story in uh, D.C. is doing, or it's uh, it, for uh, All-American, actually, uh, because they haven't merged yet. It's in 1944. Uh, they do a Green Lantern story, and it's written by Alfred Bester and Paul Reinman. Alfred Bester, of course, is also a science fiction writer. He's actually friends with Ted Sturgeon. He will go on to be uh, considerably more famous for writing The Stars My Destination, uh, among other famous sci-fi novels. And as kind of a tip of the hat to his buddy, Ted Sturgeon, he also creates a Swamp Monster character. Now, this one's going to be a bit different because he looks much more human-like, right? But he tells this story, uh, which in the 1890s, this wealthy merchant named Cyrus Gold gets murdered. And his body is dropped in Slaughter Swamp, which is near Gotham City, which is where Green Lantern is also from, uh, as well as Batman in the 40s. Green Lantern's character is based there. 15, 50 years later, the corpse gets reanimated out of, like, the swamp matter that is accumulated around the body and doesn't remember who he is. He has no memory of his past life. Murders a couple of escaped criminals who are hiding out in the marsh and steals their clothes. And then he shows up in a hobo camp and they ask him what his name is. He can't remember, but what he does remember is that he was born on Monday. And one of the men in the camp mentions the nursery rhyme character. Solomon Grundy, was born on a Monday. And the, the, the creature adopts the name Solomon Grundy. So this is the first appearance of this you know, like famous bad guy. And he's got basically the same backstory as The Heap and It and all of these other characters. Solomon Grundy falls into this life of crime with the mob that he's hanging out with. And eventually has to fight Green Lantern. And Grundy is a really hard bad guy for Green Lantern to fight because Green Lantern at this part, right, his ring does not affect wood. And Solomon Grundy's body is partially wood because he's made up of swamp junk. Right? He's, he's made up of, of pieces of the swamp. And so Green Lantern's ring doesn't really work on him. And so the first time they fight, uh, Grundy beats the crap out of him. And Alan Scott, Green Lantern, barely escapes. Right? Uh, he comes back and gets into a second fight with him. And this time he literally has to fight him hand to hand because his ring just does not work, but he manages to kind of trick Grundy into falling under a train and a train runs over him and kills him. And that's the end of the first story. Grundy is a tremendously popular bad guy for Green Lantern. He basically becomes Green Lantern's probably number one recurring bad guy throughout the forties. He fights the entire justice society in a couple of issues of all-star comics and is, you know, very well remembered when DC brings back the Justice Society in the Silver Age. They bring back Solomon Grundy as one of their major bad guys. And Solomon Grundy fights Dr. Fate and Hourman, Man and uh, also a bunch of their modern characters uh, going forward. He, he fights Batman, he fights Starman. He just regularly shows up. He's in the Super Friends. So he's probably the most well-known of all of these like swamp monster characters. So that character now is out there. The heap is out there and Roy Thomas has is at this point has not yet. He's still a Heat fan, but he has not uh, gotten a chance to do that one story yet. It's 1971 and he's at Marvel. And if you remember from our Comics Code episode in 1971, the Comics Code changed. Now, the main thing that the Comics Code changed was to address situations like drug use in the comics you know, to, to allow that sort of thing to appear as long as it was portrayed negatively. But the change they made at the same time was they loosened up their restrictions about horror in comics, right? There had been all of these rules that you could not have The Walking Dead, you couldn't have vampires, you couldn't have werewolves, zombies. All of these things were right out, right? You just simply could not have them in the story. And there was kind of, you know, this, this push by writers to say, well, I, you mean I can't do Dracula? I mean, that's a really famous story. I can't do an adaptation of Frankenstein. You know, like why, why do we really believe that this is a problem for our children? And the Comics Code said, as long as we're changing this, we're gonna rewrite that too, so that we are not quite so strict about the use of things like the undead, which clearly the Heap and it and Solomon Grundy all are, right? They are all the, the, the walking dead, basically. So in 1971 they changed that and now it's okay to do zombie stories it's okay to do vampires and werewolves etc and so marvel is really excited about this because horror is like a big thing that they've wanted to do so they are releasing a whole bunch of horror material all over the place and stan lee goes to roy thomas and jerry conway and says i have a, you know like a great idea for what we should do we should bring back a character like the heap the heap was really cool we should do our own version of the heap, you know who has been uh, you know out of use for, for 20 years at this point let's do a heap story and so they release a magazine comic that I mean, it would not have been code anyway in the first place for it called savage tales and savage tales has the story of the man thing in it written by lee and thomas and conway all working together with gray uh gray doing the art. And this is May 71, and it comes out. And in this story, we have this scientist, Ted Salas, who is trying to recreate the Super Soldier serum that created Captain America, right? And he's working in a lab trying to get this Super Soldier serum right, to get this, you know, like to, to be, allow the government, he's on a government project to, uh, to bring back the Super Soldier serum. And AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics, the, the super science bad guys, uh, have discovered that he's doing this. And they're, of course, up to villainous shenanigans. And they bust into his lab and try to kidnap him. And he and his wife flee. And he destroys his notes, and, you know, which he's memorized so that he's the only place to actually like, understand how this would work. And then he injects the only sample of the serum that he's got into himself. And there's a car chase that ensues. Aim chases him into the swamp. He crashes his car in the swamp. His wife gets away, but he is caught in the fire. And in the fire and the muck of the swamp and the serum that he's injected himself transforms him into this horrible muck swamp monster who will be the man thing. And of the swamp creatures that appear after the heap, this one looks the most like the heap, right? He also has that kind of like fake nose built out of like a vine or Root or something like that. Uh, you know, Physically, he's got the same kind of look. And so he is transformed into this monster. He beats up the aim guys and then tries to interact with his wife, who is, of course, terrified. right? And he discovers that his power on top of being a monster made out of swamp gunk is that when something is afraid of him and he has a reaction to somebody being afraid of him, his body generates acid. Right, so he's holding his wife, and she becomes afraid of him, and the acid burns her, and she gets her face all scarred. And he lets go of her, you know, so that he doesn't hurt her anymore. Uh, and she runs away because she has not recognized him as her husband. And so, at the end of the story, he slinks off into the swamp, very sad. You know, Ted Salas has disappeared; nobody knows what happened. Aim is all thrown in jail, and his wife has a you know scarred face, and forever wonders what happened to her husband. And that's the end of the story, right? They didn't have another place. They were going to keep doing more stories of his in Savage Tales, but Savage Tales never got a second issue. It just wasn't actually like, coming out any, any further. So while that is happening, Len Wein is Jerry Conway's roommate. They literally are sharing an apartment in Greenwich Village. And Len Wein, completely according to both of them, unrelated to this without realizing what was going on, they had no idea there was going to be any more man thing, right? And he's like, man, bringing back the heat, that's a heck of a good idea. Uh, we should do that something like that over at DC, too. So he and Bernie Wrightson get together. And in July of 71, they put out an issue of House of Secrets, which is one of their anthology titles. And they do a story about a heat-like character, except this guy, it's set in the early 1900s. And the hero is a guy named Alex Olson, and he is a chemist. And in this case, uh, he's also married to a beautiful woman. And there is a bad guy who uh, wants his wife. He doesn't even actually care about the work that Olson is doing. In this case, he just wants to sleep with the guy's wife. And so the bad guy kills Alex and sets fire to his lab. And in the resulting fire with all of the chemicals, uh, Olsen is turned into a giant swamp monster who is called the Swamp Thing. And the Swamp Thing, you know, kills the bad guy. But the wife doesn't, once again, doesn't recognize him and runs away. So he very sadly wanders off into the swamp. And then we don't see him again for like a year. At that, They were both just kind of like one-shot stories. Uh, Marvel then says, you know what, we we want to do uh, another story like this. And they've hired Len Wein in the meantime. So Wein, who just wrote Swamp Thing for DC, is brought over to Marvel to write Man-Thing for them. And he writes the second story about Man-Thing. That doesn't get published for a bit. In the meantime, Roy Thomas writes a story, he's writing Kazar in Astonishing Tales. And he writes a story in which Kazar has to come to Florida uh, and hang out in the Everglades for a while, and he meets Man-Thing. And that's incidentally also the first appearance of uh, Bobby Morris, Mockingbird, uh, makes her first appearance in the story. So they move, uh, Man-Thing goes over to a series called Fear, or is occasionally called Adventures Into Fear. And that's where Steve Gerber comes in as the new writer. Like Roy and Len have just been you know, churning these out as they do you know, every month for anthology series. Gerber takes over the character because he cares about the character. He's really interested in Man-Thing as a character. And he starts writing this whole series of stories uh, in which Man-Thing is now uh, discovers the existence of this mysterious portal in the Florida Everglades. That's like a dimensional portal that connects all of these different worlds. And creatures and people keep traveling in and out of this portal. And the man thing basically becomes kind of the guardian of this portal and helps people get back to their worlds or adjust to ours or whatever. He is basically kind of like the protector of the portal. And over the course of nine issues of fear and then an entire solo series that gerber is writing the man thing meets is introduced to uh jennifer kale as a character fool killer as a bad guy and most importantly howard the duck this is how howard the duck makes it to our reality is through that portal so howard the duck's first ever appearance is in man thing gerber eventually can't you know make his uh you know deadlines and winds up kind of, you know, fighting with Marvel management for a while. Chris Claremont takes over as the new writer of, of Man-Thing in the late seventies and does a bunch of very kind of postmodern stories with the character that will, that are kind of Grant Morrison before Grant Morrison, right? In which he kind of uh, refers to Man-Thing as a, as a comic book character. And over the course of his run, Chris Claremont himself appears in the stories as the writer of Man-Thing, dies, and then becomes the Man-Thing himself. And so there's an entire stretch of stories in which the Man-Thing is, in fact, actually Chris Claremont wandering around. And that's a really kind of like demented run of stories that, you know, not a lot of people remember because it did not sell very well at all. So Man-Thing has, you know, continued to kick around for, uh, for Marvel for, for quite a while. He's never really become a star. He's never had a lasting series of his own since then. He did get a movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it on the Sci-Fi Channel. A low-budget, but really kind of awesome movie in 2005. A, a licensed movie for him. That wasn't really faithful to the comic at all, but was still kind of excellent, actually. If, you, if you've never seen it, you, uh, you totally should, uh, you should check it out. Steve Gerber was really upset that he didn't own the rights to the stuff that he had created in Man-Thing. And so in the 90s, he is fighting with Marvel mostly about the rights to Howard the Duck. But incidentally, he didn't create Man Thing, but he kind of turned Man Thing into the character everybody knew, right? So he wasn't really expecting to get Man Thing back. But as long as he was kind of taking the piss from Marvel and like fighting in public with them about the rights to Howard the Duck, he went to work for Malibu and did for their line of comics, they had a superhero line called the Ultraverse. And in the Ultraverse, Steve Gerber created a character called Sludge, who once again is basically Man-Thing, right? Who is basically The Heap, who is basically it. Uh, In this case, he's a cop, an NYPD cop. He gets killed by mobsters. gets his body dumped in a sewer full of toxic chemicals that transform him into a slime monster. Of course, he emerges and wanders around the city, spends about 12 issues or so trying to solve his own murder, right? Like he's trying to figure out which mobsters in fact actually killed him, and incidentally is getting involved in a bunch of other stories he shows up in the uh, ultra force cartoon as a supporting character in that so you know he does gerber does make mind up making some money off the character incidentally and in the meantime also spends a lot of time making fun of marvel comics and like you know lampooning his ongoing contract battles with them. meanwhile over at dc swamp thing is still going on Swamp Thing has gotten its own series and in this time, when they've brought him back, it's Len Wein writing it again. And in this case, they have now taken him from the early 1900s to the modern day and completely retold his origin. Now he's Alec Holland, not Alex Olson. And he is a plant biologist and he has invented a formula that will uh, cause plants to regrow after they've been poisoned or, or, or harmed in some way and will increase their growth And this will, you know, solve world hunger and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, he gets uh, some, you know, thugs and mobsters mad at him. and They plant a bomb in his facility, blows it and him up. His body is covered in fire. He runs out into the swamp, drenched into the formula, and rises again as the swamp thing. So, once again, we've gone back to this same storyline that all these different characters have had. That series runs for two years. It introduces uh, a bunch of the famous Swamp Thing supporting characters in that one. That's where Matt Cable first appears, who is Matthew the Raven in uh, Sandman. It's where Abigail Arcane and her father, Anton, appear. The Patchwork Man appears. All of these other characters. At the end of the two-year run, Swamp Thing is cured. He actually it has a happy ending. Swamp Thing figures out how to turn himself back into Alec Holland, and happy day. We're done. The series ends. However, nobody was reading it, right? The reason it got canceled was because nobody cared. It was a very poor selling comic. And Swamp Thing kept appearing as a guest in other people's comics, even though he'd been cured in his own comic. Like a bunch of writers at DC didn't know that or didn't care, right? And so Swamp Thing appears as a bad guy or an interesting supporting guy in The Challengers of the Unknown and in Adam Strange and with a bunch of other stuff that was going on with no explanation as to how come he's still the monster, because in the last issue of his own comic, he got fixed, right? He finally appears in a challenger story where like the Challenger's writer has noticed this and makes a point of going out and says, well, it turned out the cure didn't stick. He turned back into a monster too bad. And that's the explanation going forward. It just, it didn't stick. In 1982, Marty Pasco and Tom Yates get another shot. that's they are asked who they want to do. They want to do a horror series and they want to bring back Swamp Thing and give him his own series. And Tom Yates, at this point, is sharing a house in New Jersey with three other writers slash artists, Steve Bissett, John Tottleman, and Rick Veitch. Yates is kind of the most famous of them at this point. He's certainly the most commercial of them, and he's the one who's gotten work from D.C. The rest of them are all still kind of like doing indie stuff. But he gets this job doing Swamp Thing uh, and, uh, you know. Marty Pasco is the new scripter for it. Len Wein is still the editor because he's still kind of running horror things at DC. Uh, and they pretty much declare at the beginning of the Saga of Swamp Things series that the end of the first series never happened. That was just Don't even worry about it. That, we're, we're completely ignoring that. That's been cut out of continuity. He's still a monster. Let's just go with it. And they do 19 issues of that series of just telling more horror stories about Swamp Thing. Bissett winds up replacing Yates on art because they've been working together for a while already. And as Yates was falling behind, Bissette was helping him keep his inking, on, uh, his, his inking and penciling on schedule, right? So Bissett winds up taking over as the full-scale artist and now Tottlebin is doing his inking. A lot of roommate drama in this one. There is, yeah. Well, the, the way things wind up working in history, in the comics, it's got a lot to do with who you know, right? So Bissette is now doing the penciling. Tuttlebin is doing the inking, and a new writer comes along to write Swamp Thing, and his name is Alan Moore. And he writes The Anatomy Lesson, the famous first Swamp Thing story that he does, which basically undoes the entire premise of Swamp Thing. Because as Alan Moore says, the problem with Swamp Thing as a character is the same problem that you have with Gill, right? The day they get what they want, the story's over. Swamp Thing is not interesting if he's not being Swamp Thing. Therefore. Why are we telling all of these stories about Swamp Thing's efforts to try to cure himself when the audience knows it's a cheat? The audience knows it will never happen because he's much more interesting as a monster, right? So uh, Moore undoes that entire story and basically says that Swamp Thing thinks he's Alec Holland. He's based on this guy who died in the swamp, but he is a separate creature. You can't turn back into Alec because you never were Alec Holland. And then over the course of many more stories, eventually explains how he is in fact actually a plant elemental and all of these stories about uh, these, you know, the, the, the history of him, that there has always been a creature like him on Earth, that the plant life on Earth, the green, always creates this avatar, manifests this creature to represent it on Earth, and he is only the latest one to do that, right? And so that series continues for quite some time. During that run, it becomes the first series to reject the comic code outright. They just say, screw it, we're not going to submit. The comic code disapproves of everything that we're doing over here. There's way too much sex, way too much violence, way too much whatever. And so, you know, for its entire run, that basically, the success of it doing that, of getting away with that, will lead to the creation of Vertigo entirely. It becomes the first example of how Vertigo is going to work. 1987, Moore has now... Done a bunch of stuff for DC. He's working on Watchmen. He's trying to finish Watchmen. He doesn't have time to write Swamp Thing anymore, and he's been doing it for four years. So he turns it over to the last of those four roommates, to Rick Veitch, right, who is already friends with Bissett and Tottleben, and you know has been following along with all of this and is the next guy to kind of like take over. Veitch does a really interesting run for a couple of years that only ends in 1989 when Veitch tries to do a story in which Swamp Thing is traveling backwards in time and meeting all of these characters throughout history in reverse, right? And as a backdrop to part of that story, the Holy Grail is a plot device. And at the near the climax of the story, Swamp Thing shows up at Cavalry, right? Where Christ himself is being crucified and gets his hands on the Holy Grail for the first time, and basically, like, allows Jesus Christ to drink from the cup uh, when he asks for water. So, like, Swamp Thing is literally standing next to Jesus while this is happening, right? Furthermore, the first piece of art, the cover for that issue, showed a picture of a wooden cross with the Swamp Thing's head on the top. Suggesting that he was, in fact, the, his body was the wood that Jesus' cross was made out of. And DC, having already approved this entire plotline in advance, takes a look at that and says, Yeah, no, you are not publishing that. We're not publishing that. Go rewrite that story entirely. And, you know, we would never be able to sell that in the South. We would just get nothing but complaints, et cetera. No, you're, you're done. Bates quits because, you know, believing he's being censored for this. And the next guy who was supposed to take over Swamp Thing at that point, who had already agreed that when this story was over would be the next writer, is Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman says to DC, you guys just fucked over the guy in, before me. Why should I work for you for it? And says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to work on that. I, I won't work on a character that you own, that you have the rights to say that. And so... Gaiman never actually writes Swamp Thing, even though he was supposed to be the next writer after Vage because of the way they treated Vage. And so Doug Wheeler winds up taking over. That is, you know, Swamp Thing kind of like goes on in a different direction from there. But can you imagine what that would have been like the day that Neil Gaiman took over Swamp Thing? What a great series that would have been! That would have been awesome. So anyway, the last kind to kind of like tie all of this together. Moore himself, of course, is a huge fan of comic book history. He knows all of these historical characters. And so the first time that Swamp Thing meets the entire parliament of trees, all of the elementals who've been on earth before him, one of the members of the parliament that he stops and talks to for a while is a German World War I pilot named Albert Hollerer, who tells his life story to Swamp Thing about how he was shot down over Poland. And ever since his, it never kind of like came to full intelligence. He was like damaged during his creation. And the whole time he's talking to him, he's got a small toy plane dra- dangling from one of his branches, which is like Ricky's had, like Ricky Wood had back in the Peep stories, right? So it's really obvious that even though they don't have the rights, that this character, the Albert Hollerer character, is in fact the Heap himself, right? Who's kind of like giving his blessing to Swamping to kind of like carry on for him. So that kind of like, you know, is the, the more kind of like acknowledging the full circle of like, you know. The, the, the inspiration of the characters and the line of these characters and so that is the history of all of the different characters that are descended from the same basic original short story from 80 years ago. There's an entire family of them. That's really interesting a lot of characters who all came from that one original short story Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for uh, joining us i would see Steve Tasker and this has been Darren Ross Thanks for coming guys